if you are creating something that is of enough value, you can get enough like kind of grassroots support. And then if you can get enough high level support and people care very deeply about what it is, they're not going to let it die. They're going to find ways to push it forward and get it baked into the system and make that change, despite really all the cards being stacked against you. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before we got here. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office, joined by Cody James. Can you give us a quick rundown of who you are, who you work for, what you do? Yeah. My name is Cody James. I'm the founder of OpenX. And what we do is digital training for uh, hard industrial skills like robotics or maybe machining, composites, a lot of the things that make up the great like aerospace and defense industries across the United States and globally. And how long have you been doing that? Started OpenX. The original idea was about six years ago, and I went full-time three months before COVID which was quite fun. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I've been a robotics programmer previously in the industry for the last about 10 years. Yeah. And where are you calling from? Any place fun? Today I'm calling from uh, Salt Lake City. We have an office here and then one in Southern California and Irvine. So I've spent my time split between the two. Oh, yeah. And where do you live, though? Are you local to Salt Lake City? Kind of both. It's a startup, you know, so. <laughs> but yeah, we're next to Hill Air Force Base here. So right up in Layton. I see. I see. All right. How did you come to be a, you called yourself a robotics engineer, right? Yeah, I was a, a robotics programmer before working in aerospace. So I was like at Boeing, I worked on the 787 Dreamliner, a few automation programs on that. And then on like the Delta IV NASA collaboration. I So how I got into that originally was the inkling into creating OpenX. I found that university programs and community colleges were outdated by like four to five years. And to go get a third party certification, it was like this exhaustive five-day workshop where you're just like pedaling through these old notebooks and manuals. So I ended up learning off of uh, just YouTube and Reddit to get into robotics programming originally. And later on, I decided to create a company that makes the process of learning the skills way easier so we could help America skill up further and, and revive the you know, manufacturing prowess of our country. Is that how you got into Sibbers? Because I hear you have quite the extensive experience with Sibbers. So, well, we're not a Sibber mill, that's for sure. We've only pursued one of the like SBR grant programs. We did that under guidance of a mentor of mine. I was a retired two-star force general. And you know, he brought this idea of like, hey, if you want to revive the manufacturing prowess of America, and if you want to like empower Americans to build again, what better thing than to partner with the Air Force? You know, really like you're looking at Boeing and Lockheed and Northrop makes sense. That's their customer and it's the full ecosystem. We applied for one SBIR right around COVID when it began and brought that within two months to a phase two. Within 12 months, we got to our first phase three and we've grown quite a bit from there. Whoa, 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 wait. Within 12 months, you had a, you were in your phase three. Can yeah. we, yeah. can we unpack that a little bit? Cause that's, that's yeah. not common. And yes, it was great. very hard. Okay. Yeah. So what we've happened? heard. What's the story yeah. there? Yeah. So what we brought forward, the key technology is that uh, we want to be able to take any technical topic. So say like machining, which would be used on all the metal tech shops across the Air Force, or maybe understanding like composites that are used on the B-2 or many other modern aircraft like the F-35. Wouldn't they create a system? We could take these technologies and then rapidly create like a full training program that gives you a 3D model and allows airmen to like maneuver them and work through them. If you're familiar, you know, like CBTs have a terrible rap in the DoD, rightfully so. They're like for all the Air Force listeners, uh, Jeff and Tina, like 2001 graphics and like moving around. So what we were pitching in our SBR was like, what if we could create a really beautiful, modern 
like skill training platform that helps empower airmen service members adopt these new technologies and understand them. Also, maybe be able to use them when they transition as well. So we pitched that. We get adopted from McConnell Air Force Base 22 ARW under Air Mobility Command. And we deployed in their innovation lab, their Spark Cell. The idea was, let's get airmen the ability to, within weeks instead of like six or nine months, train up on all those different like tools and technologies they're using in their Spark Cell. That caught the attention of then uh, Secretary of the Air Force, the Honorable Miss Barbara Barrett. And uh, she had us out to hear about what we were doing. She aptly called it, you know, Netflix for like industrial skill training. And then we were able to meet with General Van Ovost, who was at the time commander of Air Mobility Command. And she was asking a few important questions to the Spark Cell, you know, questions around transitioning service members and how they come in, how quickly we can get them to pick up the right skills. And then when they transition or they TDY or they, you know, just move in the natural flow of things. I was able to listen in on that conversation throughout a few different ideas. And we had a really good conversation around how we can support the global network of different Spark Cells. Soon after that, Air Mobility Command would bring us to our first phase three, where we were able to deploy our training platform across all of the different Spark Cells globally that were within their, their reach. And yeah, we were able to help a lot of airmen get a powered up faster and go solve problems. So that did was our just, first phase three. Did you just have the, I don't know, the, the, what what was it? And I guess right place, right time. I'm, I'm like, what was going on? Because yeah. you, you were, you got the attention of the right people and the right end users, right? To make all the stars align to get to that phase three in a relatively short amount of time, in my opinion. Yeah. Your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it'd be very difficult, I guess, to recreate it. It was okay. very fortunate, you know, but they say like luck is this crossroads between hard work and opportunity. So yeah. we were, and still are, not really sleeping much, very small lean team, but we're just having as many conversations as possible, sharing with what, like what we're doing with as many people. And, you know, we have a huge thing here where we really believe in just developing relationships rather than trying to like push or pedal like sales or anything like that. So by building these authentic relationships with a lot of airmen and like agnostic of rank, we don't care. You know, we got a call one day from a tech sergeant who's just exceptional at what he does. He's incredible coach. And he said, hey, I have this opportunity. I really love what you guys are doing. I'd love for you to come by and meet you know, SACAF, or I'd love for you to meet General Van Ovost. And we find that the more we put ourselves out there and the more we're building like these authentic relationships where we're genuinely trying to provide something of value and solve a problem, the more these opportunities seem to pop up. Mm. Have you had more than one phase three since then? Yes. Yeah. Today we are, we were just awarded our 27th phase three from that one SPR. We're, we're not at program of record yet, but we have support for it to apply. And like, we're in that PPBE, like life cycle and we're going to aim for the deadline next year with with our partners. Sorry, I'm still just <laughs> processing that you've had 27 phase threes because that that too is quite uncommon to have that many. But uh, was it this phase threes with the same customer or, or end user or w was it different end users? Different end users for the most part. Um, we So a little bit of like our overarching strategy. So, you know, we're trying to think of like, how do we get a new a piece of technology adopted at scale. And we're looking at all these things like, okay, this is a super complex process. And why is it that like so many startups can't really like transition or make it through these, these hurdles? We know where we want to be, which is to be this like, you know, long life cycle sustained technology that is able to bring value to the people who need it and help us stay alive in the environment. After we we got to our phase two, we started like having very deep thoughts about, you know, what, what does our transition pathway look like? So we decided that with this first opportunity for us to bring our platform across all the different spark cells, what we're going to do instead of just going for 
and right or wrong. Like we don't know. We're we're are a group of people trying to figure it out. Like most, what we intended to do was let's try to find a way where we can build past performance and build credibility by offering like smaller, easier to engage phase threes, like larger than a GPC limit or maybe like around that range, but not something that is like this in itself, large, massive program that's going to be sustained forever. Let's try to find these opportunities and then let's engage them across all the different key match comps. So, you know, we were able to engage with AMC to start. We used that to build a relationship with uh, Air Force Global Strike Command, with ACC, then with AETC. We actually, an interesting note for us being a training company, we went ATC afterwards because we wanted to focus on being very fielded and being like driven by the service members on the field who actually need something. That's not to say ATC doesn't do that, but in the context of what we wanted to drive, wanted to make sure it was in the hands of the driver. So yeah, that's why it's such a large number in terms of phase threes. We've just really focused on trying to build this past performance from our experience in the industry. We're thinking like, well, someone's reviewing this. Like we can't just ask, like, will you take us to program a record? We want to have that kind of context first. Is it fair to say your strategy was more, I'll use my terms, implementing or executing a number of small pilots, like you said, at that mm -hmm. really low dollar range level, mm -hmm. which is where, where you're, the, the cost risk is low so that right. you could build a, have at least the opportunity, the chance to build the longer term relationship that might lead right. to, right. and I'm going to, here's where you can check me. And I, I may be putting words in your mouth, but because I, I, I think I know yeah. you're doing, because we use the same strategy kind of on, on the trade wins team where we're not necessarily guaranteeing anything when we're starting mm -hmm. these pilots, but the act of learning is more important to us than trying to achieve, trying to boil the ocean, so to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, I it's, think it's, I that's it. equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you say earlier, like this was kind of during COVID period. Yeah. So between then and now, you've received these 27 phase three, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what are some, I would say, big learning moments for you? So you're kind of doing the same thing we are. Like, what have you learned through this process in terms of built? I'm, I'm sure not all 27, you know, are, are going maybe at a longer term relationship with you contractually. So what's going on there? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of lessons, even from like just a traditional startup standpoint, like we're a startup, we're trying to like figure out things and, and grow a company that can scale to solve the problem we want to. So, you know, in traditional, like kind of startup motion, you would develop a product market fit and you'd have like ICPs or ideal customer profiles that you can repeat. We found that in the context of DoD, a lot of that gets kind of thrown out the window. You have this like ultra complex, you know, chain of approval that is very difficult. And we've been like constantly evolving this and trying to think through it. One of the largest ones naturally, and you'll find a million people talking about it is the procurement process and <laughs> just how difficult that is. And I can tell you that we didn't, you know, figure out how to scale these like smaller engagements, these proof of concept pilots, path performances before we saw the contracting side. So we were lucky enough to be selected by 80 second cons out of EETC to pilot one of their new things called Innovation Sherpas. And what this was is a five-year blanket purchase agreement that gave us the ability to procure off of like a standardized kind of call sign or call sheet. So that was extremely helpful for us. And I know that's not much of a, a learning, but I'm just putting some context behind kind of our experience in getting to know this environment and, and navigating it. So, yeah, that was extremely important. Now, from the learning standpoint, you know, there's a million small things like, you know, often when we see a request for proposal or something online, by the by the moment it's hit online, it's most likely that they've already figured out kind of how they want to go about this, this team has, or, you know, it's already been structured that way. We found the importance of being a part of the conversations early and ensuring that we're aligned with what 
the goals of the Anduser group as just the natural stuff. Yeah. And trying to like, you know, bring the right amount of, of progress from a technology standpoint to the right people at the right time. I'm sure that you guys have dealt quite a bit with like this concept of frozen middle. I think people are like, we yeah. don't need change. Like, let's just keep it as it is. Or like, there's yeah. no incentive profile for, you know, introducing new risk. So yeah, like it's been a pretty interesting journey. Yeah. Can we go back to the innovation Sherpas thing? Can you tell me more about mm -hmm. that? What is that again? And how did you play a role in it? Yeah. So essentially it's a simplified acquisition pathway where they brought in a few different companies and issued like purchase agreements where you're able to place a catalog of your product slash service. And then you enable different contracting or end user groups to procure quicker off of it. So we're able to go for example, we just brought licenses of our training platform all across the, the Japan air bases, like Yokota and Kadena. We were able to come into the groups there and we were able to get them onto, for example, get them onto our uh, blanket purchase agreement, onto our call log, and then they could just make a call to these standardized things and we already have the contract built out for them. So yeah, that, that's, <clears throat> we were one of the early like selected companies to be able to pilot and build that out with the 82nd cons team. It's been and fantastic. The the BPAs were decentralized so that other contracting units or support elements could leverage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what it wasn't 82nd cons performing the calls right. or executing right. the calls, right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. That was huge. <laughs> yeah. It was very helpful. Yeah. We were exploring, like, we talked to GSA and they're a fantastic team. Like, you know, Rodney Quick out there is, is doing outstanding work under A5, but like, yeah, we were just trying to figure out what was the right route that would work the best for, you know, the customers and the groups and that would allow us to get the scale that we needed to be able to go support getting the program of record. So, well, just in the 10 minutes or so we've been talking, it sounds like you've successfully, to some degree, I would call it a success, whether you're humble enough or not, you know, navigated this labyrinth of our, you know, new deconstruct. So where I guess I'm landing in a place of I think part of the reason why we're talking today is because there's recognition that we it shouldn't be so hard to do what you did. What is from your perspective, maybe the reality that small businesses or startups like yours are facing and they may not have had maybe the moments that you had where I called it right place, right time. You know, I'm not trying to dismiss the hard work that you all put in, but there is an element of knowing the right people and being in the right maybe space that some people just don't have don't have the luxury of having so what i'll stop pontificating and yeah i'm really interested in from your perspective like how how would i say this true or real is that for a startup or a small business well you know like i think a lot of our progress new came from us not knowing that like certain things were very difficult like uh we didn't know that uh, there was a low percentage of companies that transitioned to phase three. And we have no experience, particularly working in the Department of Defense, like atmosphere, certainly on like, you know, the manufacturing and engineering sides, but not, you know, building a team that goes in services or sells to. So when it comes to new startups, like as of recently, I've been a lot more hesitant when giving inputs or advice to like fellow startups that are joining. For example, there's one that I, I love the product of, of what they're building. They're called Rollup AI. And it's a, I don't want to give away too much, but essentially it's a better system for engineering new products. And the founder and I were talking and he's like, I'd really like to see if this would be of value to the Air Force. And I gave it a lot of like kind of just hesitancies of, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, you could have like a four star be excited about what you're doing. And it actually doesn't matter much in terms of getting it over the line and getting it like fully through, you know, it might be exciting getting a phase one, but then 
you know, it's very difficult to get the level of support or get the level of clarity that you need to get towards phase two. And while you're trying to gain this level of clarity, you're going to be bogged down by everything from like the WAF PIEE system, which is exhausting for a new company to figure out. It's like so, so painful to trying to figure out where is the signal in the noise. And like, be honest, we're still trying to figure out like where exactly is that signal in the noise? So yeah, for new startups and, and companies entering the space, I would just heed the warning of there's going to be so many things that are apparent signals that you would want to draw your attention towards. But if you can somehow yeah. find like to a degree of certainty, like the, the real signals that have potential of bringing you forward. And I think that comes partly from just talking to people who've been through the process. I'm very thankful for yeah, the type of people that I've had the chance to either listen to online or just talk to in person. Uh, there's some really, really great minds in the space. One I can't cite enough is like Trey Stevens over at Founders Fund. He's also the chairman of Anderol. And, you know, if you listen to like any of his podcasts or, you know, him talking about his experience back at Palantir, everything he says is like dead on. Uh, you can just tell that he's lived and breathed this for quite some time. So, yeah, I I would just yeah. heed the warning that there's a lot of false positives and that it's really, really hard to lock onto the, the good signal. And any other resources or industry resources that y you tend to gravitate towards as you're doing what you're talking about, navigating? You know, they change so often. <laughs> it's like when we started, uh, Union VC was like super popular for everyone talking and it doesn't seem like that's as popular these days. But yes, I find like getting to know and befriending a couple of like the wise groups of like really good operators in the space, either on the on the service side or on the like mm -hmm. public or private side, find not to be helpful. Just having people that you can talk to and you know, meet them at either like these trade shows or, you know, you just spot them like operating anywhere uh, really. But yeah, just building yeah. that little community. I find that that's one of the most valuable things. But I, I can't say that there's like one really solid like perfect yeah. resource. It's really hard to find. Sure. Okay. How about what in, in your journey, what was some of that advice or insight that you gleaned from wherever, operator side, mentors, or people, like you said, who have lived this path, or you could tell that they lived this path? I would call that the equivalent. I like to say, um, when I'm looking for people on the government side, I'm looking for people with deep Pentagon scars, right? That people yeah, have, yeah. just... They know. So what, what were some of the things in your journey that like really, I don't know, just helped you be, either be resilient or yeah. understand when to pivot or to do the false positives, like identify the false positives? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think like the most important thing is that there's a certain understanding that's talked about every once in a while. I think like Elon talked about it at AFA a few years ago, but it's the incentive structure and how no matter really like how good what you're building is, there's very, very, very thin or low incentives to bring that forward because it's going to introduce new risk and, and there's a lot of complexities and like, you know, what do I get as you know service member if I bring forward this new technology and, you know, it helps us by a process by like 10x or 100x. Like I might get a pat on the back or, you know, something, but if it goes wrong, you know, I'll, I'll get punished and, you know, there's a terrible overall incentive structure. So I find that there's like a small, small group of people that are within the Department of Defense that are within the U.S. government that care so passionately about solving a problem that they're the ones who are willing to carry the torch forward and introduce a solution to actually fix a major problem. Despite, you know, this, this overarching, you know, maligned kind of like incentive structure. So I find one of the most important lessons is making sure that you're spending time with those groups that 
have this strong conviction about solving the problem that you're trying to solve as well. Mm. And then other than that, super important, but just building something that people fall in love with. Like, you know, if you are creating something that is of enough, enough value, you can get enough like kind of grassroots support. And then if you can get enough high level support and, you know, people care very deeply about what it is, they're not going to let it die. They're going to find ways to push it forward and get it baked into the system and make that change despite really all the cards being stacked against you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're really emphasizing a few truths I found from talking to all sorts of different people. I mean, you started by about engaging with operators so that you you understand where the problems are. And once you provide a product or a service that fills that gap, like there's, if you have absolute clarity on how you're adding value to improve a practitioner like me or an operator's mm -hmm. life, that tends to be thing number one for how you do well in right. this state. Yeah, classic startup, uh -huh. like actually solve a problem, you know? Yes. <laughs> so yes. Off, no so overlooked, but yeah, very, yeah. very like building block. Yeah. And then the idea of where my mind went when you were talking about like find that like this niche group of people who are finding ways to get things done in an environment that is not incentivizing them to do any of that, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they're there might be, there's something to learn there. I, I can totally appreciate and relate to that as well. So I don't know, what can we learn from this as well in terms of, can we get to a place, we, the department, where we are, we can spur the growth of new ideas and new companies and startups to execute on those ideas, essentially? Yeah. Do you believe we can get to that place without the institutional inertia fighting back? Work ideas uh, internally or externally? Or just agnostically across the board. Agnostically, yeah. I think, yeah. The, but I mean, recognizing industry is the one, you know, providing the department with goods and services. Yeah, I would say generally, like the incentive is there. I think, you know, if had the chance, most startups wouldn't shy away from having the US government as a customer. It's just that the process has become so cumbersome. And, you know, like you're trying to, like you said, navigate this labyrinth with inside like this Leviathan, like this monster. I find like certain efforts, like they're not really highly scaled, but certain efforts like Heidi Shu from OST has put out in terms of scaling up, getting more vehicles and bridging up more companies to have more sustainable contract vehicles. Those are really great. But at the end of the day, like the majority of SBIR companies that go through, whether like for the better or for the worse, they're going to die if they just rely within the U.S. government, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, they're going to spend an exhaustive amount of time, like we all do, trying to figure out the right paths forward and trying to figure out, you know, whether there's some intricacy within like, you know, the phase two process. And they're trying to figure out like what level of, uh, you know, security grade software do I need to build or like, you know, what kind of considerations do I need in ITAR if I'm building hardware that's going to go in a certain system, whether they'll exhaust themselves on that process or exhaust themselves on the like almost intent number of other processes that they could most are going to make that transition and like, i know it's been aptly called like value of death and stuff but what i'm getting to overall is that this environment has become so complex to navigate when maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be you know if we were able to build a system where you know you just like i know it sounds horrible and like super high level but if we were able to summarize it into like here are the exact 10 steps that you need to get through. Okay, so like, if you're going through the SBIR process, you need to understand these 15 things in terms of how to like communicate with an end user. You know, what are the differences in the end users? How do you like fill an invoice? And if we can get that level of understanding across these young companies of where they actually need to go, because like 
most communications and AppWorks is doing a phenomenal job with like what they have and the constraints of a constantly rotating leadership. But if we can communicate a bit more beyond just like get to phase three, what does yeah. that mean? And why are we excited about that? Like, is that, does that imply exactly that they've made it to like a sustained contract that they're now something that's going to be around for five to 10 years or like anything else? If we could simplify the process of new uh, companies entering and then focus like very much so on making sure that as many of the good ideas, like we don't need to fight against the natural flow of capitalism and like companies dying or not. But if we could make sure that the good ideas have a chance to make it through and, you know, begin to solve one by one these processes that are broken of acquisition, of clarity, of the contracting process and more, prevent companies from having to go like the natural route that makes the most sense, which is like, you know, pouring tons of money into like trade shows to try to get like in front of as many people that are like yeah. potentially the right decision makers. Yeah. You'll see like micro cases that are create, being created and pushed right now, like half a force pushing the gain system, which and like vision, I mean, that's like a good chance to like bring more visibility to the process from one angle. But yeah, it's almost like yeah, the Leviathan of the U.S. government has this idea that we want to bring in new technologies and a lot of that could exist, but we just don't have like the breadth of ability to make it like an, a simple transition bridge. So yeah, I guess like the question and the answer depend very much by what angle or what sides or side you're on. So for sure. How about what understanding kind of like we were just talking about earlier, we can't boil the ocean overnight. Mm -hmm. And what do you think is a logical, practical next step, though, for the department, like to move toward what you're talking about, to maybe breaking down the Leviathan or the labyrinth into yeah. a place where we have less turns or something, right? Like, what does that look like to you in terms of what a, a great, like, next step? And I'm very practitioner-oriented, right? So this is for the mm. practitioner. What could yeah. we be doing <clears throat> now versus waiting for someone to fix all the things? Like, what is that to you? Yeah, I would say something that would be really helpful from an acquisition standpoint is to not only understand the background of the new technology or the like company that you're working with, you know, if it's an SPR company, understanding like, okay, I am safe to talk to this company, but understanding the constraints around, you know, their build, like their configuration of a company. So things like, you know, it's very important that we get the contract quickly. We can't spend, you know, four months after we've heard something positive and then just like, you know, we'll get to this later when we can kind of thing. A faster, simplified, easy acquisition process where the key users that are supporting the company also understand the company. So if we had that, I think that that would be a massive gain, super helpful, but also by any means, just like helping the new ideas, the new technologies understand the rest of the process. Like, you know, if we did this like poll across all of the different phase two companies in the last cycle, you know, how many of them understand the difference between getting to phase three and getting to like, you know, a sustained contract within a certain like PEO or, or like a certain, you know, key arena. I think that that's a huge difference. And there's like no resource that I'm, there is a resource out there. I'm sure of it, but there's no resource that's like massively spread across and given to every single like new company that's coming in. And I am talking just from like the Cyber niche, but no resource that explains like what the acronym PPBE stands for or anything else. Uh, I think that that would be super helpful yeah. from the practitioner standpoint to not only understand the config of these companies, you know, not be scared of them, but guide them through and give them better clarity on where they should be putting their focus. I know it's a lot to ask, but yeah, it's like a group is really serious about wanting to find the best technologies that are coming in. And I know it's like a limited array. Those are some of the things that I think would really, really be helpful for building that relationship with the new company. Right. All right. So we're starting to ask 
our guests, what does a defense maverick mean to you? And I know you're on the industry side, so what I think you'll have an interesting spin or take on what you believe it means to be a defense maverick. I guess people from unconventional backgrounds bringing different ideas forward yeah. that, yeah, yeah, I would say that, that that mostly is it. People from unconventional backgrounds that are uh, trying to bring change and, and positive progress forward that, you know, even don't have any experience in these environments. They're just like, hey, this needs to be solved. Let's go figure it out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, whether that whether that's the people I mentioned before, like a like a Trey Stevens, I'd consider that to be a great defense maverick or, you know, a Palmer Lucky. He's done phenomenal work in the defense atmosphere. And, you know, I think he just coined a, a phrase. I love this. Uh, he's like taking the Silicon Valley, like move fast and break things. But in defense context, it's like move fast and fix things. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like I think these ty types of personalities are like, true, genuine representations of a, a, a defense maverick, but someone who's, who's not worried about the size of the Leviathan, like just like, okay, well, this is our, this is our system and we're going to make it the best it can be no matter what, like irrespective of the challenge. I dig it. And final piece of advice, either to anyone not restrictive, anything we haven't covered that you, you just want to say to close the loop on our fun conversation. <laughs> Yeah, probably the best piece of advice is uh, just because you can rationalize something doesn't mean it's true. Like we're all, all of us are constantly trying to figure this out, myself included. And, you know, I'd, I would love to learn from anyone who's listened to this and has like additional information that would help us figure this out and other groups that are constantly trying to like navigate and fight through this maze. And yeah, main advice is just stick with the people who are also trying to figure it out. It tends to be a pretty good bet. Awesome. You've been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much i appreciate your time thank you for having me i appreciate it